0: Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of God.
1: Good morning. 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 For those of you who don't know me. Uh, My name is Mark and I'm the pastoral intern here at Grace Valley. It is my pleasure to preach to you this morning from Psalm 56. We live in a world that is becoming more and more uh, driven by fear. If you watch or read any of the major news outlets, you will be inundated with stories and statistics that are designed uh, to alarm you, to convince you that everything is approaching the point of no return. But while the the recounting of events tends to be sensationalized for effect, reporters don't have to manufacture fear for us. Tomorrow morning you could wake up to A financial crisis, right, like the American economic crash of 2008. People woke up in the morning and no longer owned homes or retirement savings. You could go to the doctor for a routine checkup and find out you have a terminal disease. You could be turning onto your own street at the end of the day and be hit by another car and never make it home. There are perfectly logical reasons for fear in most cases, but even when there's not, at least on the surface, there's still, and, uh, as I've gotten older, this is manifested in uh, an extreme dislike for flying. Um, I'll do it if I absolutely have to, but um, I, I hate every second of it. And of course, the first thing that everyone always says to me is that statistically it's far safer to fly than to drive, right? Um, Approximately 19 times safer, for anyone who's curious. But that doesn't change the fact that you're asking me to climb into a gigantic steel tube that's going to go hurtling through the stratosphere at speeds of over 500 miles per hour. 35,000 feet above sweet, sweet ground. (laughs) I don't know how anyone ever considered that to be a good idea but over the years, I've learned that my, my fear of flying actually has more existential roots. It really has a lot more to do with lack of control. Sorry. Flying, I, I really hate feeling helpless, and flying is one of those activities that really makes me acutely aware of just how helpless I really am. It's incredibly difficult to delude myself into believing that I'm in control of my own universe with my vulnerability and frailty so exposed. But a biblically informed worldview ought to anticipate this type of struggle with fear because Scripture does, right? The most repeated categories of command in the Bible are variations of uh, do not fear, do not worry, do not be afraid. Fear like sin, is natural to us. We don't have to learn it. Newborn babies exhibit fear long before there's any logical reason for them to do so. So why is this? The Bible says that it's for the exact same reason that my fear of flying can't be assuaged by logic or statistics. It's because we intrinsically know that the comforts of control and certainty are myths. Because fear is the inevitable result of a broken relationship with God. And as such, it is fundamental to fallen human nature. Our fear, whatever the cause, it speaks to us. It tells us that we are vulnerable and alone. And because of this, it raises deep spiritual questions like, where will I turn for refuge? who or what is capable of withstanding the trials of life without being swept away. But our fear also threatens to blind us to the answers. Much like um, a lunar eclipse where the moon passes in front of the sun and completely blocks out our view of it, even though the sun is roughly 400 times the size of the moon, likewise, when the circumstances of life Um, cause us to fear. They can loom so large in our view that they block our our vision of God. But how much bigger is an infinite and eternal God than the daily issues of our temporal, earthly existence, even life-threatening ones? And at this point, I think there's an important caveat, and that is that I'm not suggesting that God minimizes our experiences of suffering. Quite the opposite. I'm saying that we tend to minimize God when we experience suffering. Eugene Peterson wrote a little book on the Psalms called Answering God. And in it, he wrote this. We need a way a convincing, usable, accessible tool for realizing the largeness of God in the midst of the competing bigness of the world. And prayers like Psalm 56 are that tool. One of the primary purpose of such psalms is to teach us the discipline of locating and clinging to our steadfast and faithful God even when the entirety of our experience seems to point to his absence. We are spiritual infants, learning to truly understand and believe that he will never leave or forsake us. And this requires a fundamental shift in our attitudes and approaches to our circumstances, from passively allowing ourselves to be swept along by our fears, to actively seeking God in the midst of them. 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he said so? No, he says, because he cares for you. Do you believe that? Let's take a look at today's passage where David actually models for us what it looks like to become reoriented to God in the midst of his fears to the point that he can boldly say, this I know, that God is for me. And if you have a bulletin uh, on the back, you'll see an outline there, sort of roughly where we're going. And you'll see that the first point there is, when the walls of life are closing in on us and the pressure is mounting and we begin to lapse into blind panic we first need to know our problem so let's look at how David begins first one be gracious to me O God David begins with God word speech and this is highly instructive for us we can't miss this. He's acting on the faith that he has, that if he seeks God, even in the darkest circumstances of his life, he will find him. And psalm after psalm after psalm illustrates this to be true. He isn't allowing himself to spiral inwards or to isolate himself in frozen panic. And he doesn't just accuse God of being malicious. He cries out for help. He prays his panic. And this, this may seem obvious to those of us who've been around church our whole lives, but it's far from natural for any of us. We have to learn to do this. No matter how disorienting our experience or disordered our thoughts, the act of putting them into words is the first step towards making any sense out of the chaos. And we... Do this processing work in the presence of an all-knowing, all-powerful God who sets the standard of reality. Gain the perspective necessary to navigate our fears wisely without acknowledging God as creator and sustainer of all things. Without God, the best we can hope for is to distract ourselves from or numb ourselves to our surroundings. So let's get a sense of what David's surroundings were. Verse 1 again Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. And it's important to note that the Psalms are expertly crafted prayers that were written and collected for use in corporate worship, right? And for this reason, the language of the Psalms is both specific and general enough to capture a wide range of personal experiences, to provide a framework to interpret those experiences, and to guide our expressions of prayer in response to them. Right? They're specific enough that we actually feel that they capture a familiar enough sense of experience, but not so specific that we feel like we are eavesdropping on someone else's prayer. David describes his situation using vivid imagery. His enemies trample on him, right? They are pressing in on him closing in, he's feeling claustrophobic. And it's not just an isolated event. All day long, all day long, he says. They are doggedly pursuing him, relentlessly oppressing him. But notice David's hesitation to identify a specific oppressor. Right? He uses all different descriptors, both singular and plural. His situation as he's described it seems to defy rigid boundaries. C.C. C. Broyles, an Old Testament scholar, said this, references to enemies may simply be me- me- metaphorical imagery for the general notion of threat, whether external danger or psychological dread. And I do think that there's something of that dynamic going on here, but it can also be helpful to note that many of the early Jewish interpreters connected this psalm to the historical events of 1 Samuel 21. And in that chapter, we catch up with David as he's on the run from King Saul for no other reason than that he served Saul so well that he gained the confidence and affection of the people. And Saul felt very threatened by this and didn't like sharing his spotlight with David, so he vowed to murder him. And in desperation now, David flees to the one place that he thinks no one will look for him. He goes to the Philistine city of Gath. Now Gath is significant because it is the hometown of Goliath who David is most famous for killing. So it is unlikely that the people of Gath are big fans of David. It's hard to imagine what he might have been thinking, going there. We can only speculate, but perhaps he was thinking that because they now had a mutual enemy and Saul, the enemy of his enemy, would be his friend. However, it does not go that way. And the people of Gath recognize David, grab him, drag him before the king. And David realizing he's made a huge mistake, decides to pretend to be insane. And he's scratching up the doorposts and drooling all over his beard to the point that when he gets to King Achish, Achish is just disgusted by him and wants him out of his sight. So they throw him out of the city where David, having narrowly escaped with his life, has nowhere else to go but to the caves in the hill country between Israelite and Philistine territory. And so against this backdrop, it's easy to start to sense the terror and urgency that David is expressing here, right? Like he he is in no man's land, literally. He is exhausted. He's been living on high alert, sleeping with one eye open, peeking around every corner, looking over his shoulder constantly. He's worn out. He needs this to end. Everyone wants him dead. And frankly, I'm not sure how many of us can actually relate to this. Specific type of experience, but as Kathy prayed earlier, our brothers and sisters in China right now probably can. If you have been following uh, the unfortunately limited coverage coming out of China uh, from over the last month, then you've likely heard of Early Rain Covenant Church and how the Chinese government raided this church and over the next couple of weeks. Um, arrested over 150 men, women, and children. Um, many of them were detained in uh, undisclosed locations. A number of them haven't been heard from since. And these people from early Reign Covenant Church have now lost their church building. They've lost their right to, to, to fellowship and worship together in public. They are under constant surveillance in their own homes. Some of the members of the community have even had their foster children removed from their homes because the government is accusing them of of, uh, being part of a cult and indoctrinating these children. This is true, terrible persecution. But I know some of you are dealing with problematic relationships, relationships with tenants or landlords or bosses, coworkers, even family members estranged spouses or children, right? Sometimes these relationships, they seem to be where people are hell-bent on making us miserable in one way or another. But let's look at the other half of David's complaint. He jumps ahead, verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. So David kind of opens things up a little bit here, and maybe more of us can start to identify with some of these experiences. I'm sure all of us have been in a situation where someone has lied about us or gossiped about us or slandered us, right, or in, in an attempt to uh, destroy our reputation or to alienate us from other people. Just think about the epidemic of cyberbullying and the tragic effects That it has. So David is feeling completely run down. Day after day, wave after wave of oppressors are trying to destroy him. He's collapsing under the weight of his worries. He's weary and faint. And it's not hard to imagine him crying out, how long, oh Lord? When am I going to catch a break? And maybe you can relate to this. David shows us how to bring our complaints before the Lord in all of their unpolished messiness. He, he cries out for help, and then he lays them at the feet of his heavenly Father. Right? And some of you may be thinking, so what? I've prayed about my troubles, and nothing's ever changed. I want you to ask yourself a hard question. Are you truly seeking God and his will for your life or just your own comfort and control over your situation? Is it possible that you have simply been trying to use God to carry out your own will for your own life? See, God never promises us a life free from pain or suffering, or trial. But he does promise that he will be with us in them. And if that is his answer to your prayer, is that enough for you? See, processing our fears in God's presence is about bringing our Father into our situation rather than getting ourselves out of it, necessarily. Though that's not a bad thing, right? It's like when a child is afraid... That there is a monster under his or her bed or in the closet and they call for mom and dad. And what they want is for mom and dad to come into the room and turn the lights on. Right? And, And likewise, we too ask God into the scary situations of our life to bring the light of his presence to bear on our circumstances. Because then even if nothing in our situation actually changes suddenly we become aware that we are not alone. And things don't seem quite as scary anymore. But let's jump back into the text. This two-part structure of David's complaint in verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 really point us to what's sandwiched in between them in verses 3 and 4. Let's read these here. In verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. And this is an example of how structure and form in poetry communicate. These two verses are a statement of absolute concrete trust, but they're completely surrounded by this situation that David's described. Right? It's, it's the liturgy that he is guiding us through. It's the pattern of the entire psalm in miniature. And notice the, pro- the progression here. He starts with, when I am afraid. And he ends with, I shall not be afraid. David is going to spend the rest of this psalm putting the flesh on those bones. In the very next line he poses the first of the Psalms four rhetorical questions. He says, what can flesh do to me? And by flesh, he means just fellow humans, mortal man. But we need only look back at verses 1 and 2 and 5 and 6 to know that obviously flesh can do an awful lot to him. And our own experiences in our own lives also testify to the fact that the same is true for us. So what is David getting at? He's he's inviting us to consider the character of God, which is the second point in our outline. In the midst of your fear, you need to know your God. By crying out to God, David has shown us that he believes that God is sovereign over his situation and actually able to do something about it. Right, but, but what good is that if we don't know that he is on our side? right? So David, in this section of the psalm now, he's going to show us how this sovereign, holy, transcendent God has seen fit in his peerless wisdom to concern himself intimately with his children. He is Emmanuel. God with us. He is God for us. David is going to demonstrate this for us. So let's go to 7 and 8. For their crime will they escape. In wrath, cast down the peoples, O oh God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Have any of you who are parents here... Ever had the misfortune of witnessing one of your children being bullied or mistreated? And if so, how how did that make you feel? We, uh, <laughs> it's kind of fresh in my mind. We had a case of this the past week at uh, an indoor playground. So if you're anything like me, you're likely <laughs> immediately felt yourself uh, slipping into a highly... Um, irrational and unproductive rage, right. but what inspires this type of response? right? Is it not the depth of our love for our children? The more you love your child, the deeper your desire to shield them from harm, physical, emotional, or otherwise will be right so this instinctive kindling of our wrath against These uh, little perpetrators of injustice, to use a more sanctified term than the one I thought at the time, is a tangible sign of our deep love and tender care for our children. right? And likewise, God's wrath is fueled by his love. So when David says, in wrath, cast down the peoples, O God, He's demanding that God act on his behalf as evidence of his love for David. And as proper and comfortable Westerners, we tend to find verses like this distasteful. And we don't know what to do with them. But it's because we are ignorant to the type of suffering and persecution that David and many others around the world have and are going through. We try to pit the love of God against his wrath in an attempt to domesticate him. But David knows that a tame God is a useless God. His wrath and his love are inextricably linked. But David goes on. You have kept count of my tossings. And the imagery here is of David tossing and turning through the long, restless nights, plagued by fear and anxiety, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Put my tears in your bottle, he says. David's original audience, they would have understood this more so than we do because we have bottled water everywhere. Right? But in their arid Palestinian climate, your personal water supply was incredibly precious. Right? You guarded it with your life. And David seems to be saying that this is the way that God handles our tears. He he collects them one by one, numbering them and recording them, knowing that each and every one will ultimately be redeemed. David continues, are they not in your book? God keeps a complete record of all the injustice that goes on in his world. And he, unlike us, will never forget. None of them will escape unpaid for. God is sovereign over all things, and yet he is more intimately invested in the well-being of his children than we know. He will stop at nothing to right every wrong. Even the injustices and grievances that you and I will likely forget, not one of them will go unanswered for, either at the foot of the cross or in final judgment. And for those who are secure in their personal relationship with Jesus, this perfect justice becomes immensely comforting. As David has been meditating on who God is, We can sense the mood shifting. There's a momentum building as new faith begins to develop and grow in his heart. Just listen to what David says at this point, verse 9. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. David has come a long way from his plea for help in verse 1. He knows, he confidently declares that God is for him. This is a changed man, right? This is defiant hope being displayed here. The Lord has impressed these truths on his heart in a way that far surpasses mere intellectual assent. David's circumstances provided motivation to truly seek God, not by merely thinking about him, but by talking about him to him. So we have seen that we need to properly know our situation, right? But in order to to know our situation, we have to properly know God. So how can we confirm that our ideas about God are accurate ones? This brings us to our third point. We need to know his promises. At this point, David draws our attention to the fact that God is faithful and his plans never fail. He has a perfect track record. And it's all recorded in the Bible. Right? We can investigate it for ourselves. Verse 10 and 11, David says, In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And there's that question again. What can man do to me? It's as though David has been using this question to, to take the temperature in the moment throughout. Right? And the first time he asked it, we were still immersed in his description of. Fear and panic and, and terror and all these things closing in on him, right? But now, the second time around, our surroundings look a little different, don't they? I imagine that at this point, David will be thinking more along the lines of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, where he says, do not fear those who, ki- who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. David is is exemplifying this. He's fighting fear with fear, right? A number of places in the Psalms and Proverbs, it talks about this this fear of the Lord, right? And, And the fear of the Lord, it says, is the beginning of wisdom. This kind of fear is an appropriately humbled awe and knowledge of God. When you have it, you know your place in God's presence, and everything around you begins to fall into its rightful place as well. And it ought to grab our attention that David also uses two different names for God in verse ten here. Right in the first the first line he says in God, and this is the Hebrew, um, the Hebrew Elohim. This is the common name for God. Right, but in the second line, he says in the Lord. Right, and this is the Hebrew. Yahweh, which is the specific covenantal name of Israel's God alone. David is saying, he's communicating through this, that this isn't just any old God, this is my God. And he has proven himself to be for me. This is the same Lord who willingly bound and obligated himself in covenant to his people and who has been busy powerfully proving it throughout all of Israel's history, beginning of the Exodus. Do you understand the significance of that? This is the same God who delivered David's people from Pharaoh's army by enabling them to cross through the Red Sea on dry ground. This is the same God who stopped the Jordan River so that yet again, Israel could pass through it into the Promised Land on dry ground. This is the same God who earlier in David's life had enabled him to topple Goliath to the earth with just a pebble. David is looking to the concrete evidence in both his personal and national history of God acting decisively and powerfully on behalf of his people. And this pulls the concept of God's presence and protection out of the abstract and into real time. Right, this is tangible evidence that can be weighed and evaluated. This is something of what it means to taste and see that the Lord is good. And this is the same God whose steadfastness and care is attested to all throughout the Psalms. He's referred to as our rock, our refuge. Shield, fortress, deliverer, helper, hope, hiding place. One of my personal favorite recurring images from the Psalms is one of God as, as a mother eagle sheltering her young from the elements under her wing. Right? This, is, this is the God who draws near, that near, in our trials and suffering. But David also makes reference to God's word twice. Twice. And perhaps even more importantly to David, this is the same God who, sent, who had sent Samuel to anoint him in secret and promised that he would sit on the throne of Israel. And not only that, but this God would later promise David that his descendants would sit on the throne forever. So David is, is, is professing his trust that God is going to accomplish what he said he would. And this is good news for you and I. Because God's promises to David didn't end with him. No, they found their fulfillment a thousand years later in the life, death, and resurrection of David's heir, Jesus Christ. And it was in him that this same sovereign God ultimately exercised his power and authority and control over sin and death and everything that they produce. It was in him that this intimately loving God entered into human experience and took the ultimate injustice on himself voluntarily. And in so doing, he delivered us from death and darkness and transferred us into the light and life of his eternal presence. It was in him that this faithful God proved, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that he is for us. And while we acknowledge that sin and death are still with us for the time being, their power has been stripped away and they are awaiting their final destruction because Jesus is enthroned in heaven. And when the fullness of time has come, he will return and all the promises of scripture will be fully and finally realized in him. Listen to these words from John's revelation in the throne and this is revelation 21 and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away My friends, if you are in Christ, if you have received the precious gift of grace in Jesus, then you can know, you can have the defiant hope, the same hope that David does, that this God is for you. And if anyone here today hasn't yet received that precious gift, know that it is freely offered to you as well. Come. Enter into the security and peace that can only flow from a right relationship with this God. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. True, eternal, life-transforming rest. And if you want to talk to this about someone, please... Come find myself or Paul after the service. And we'd love to be able to answer any questions you might have. Let's take a quick look at these last two verses. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. David here completes the shift from blinding fear to confident worship. He's filled with hope and thankfulness and praise because he truly knows that God is for him. But while the Psalms certainly point to an experience of deep personal relationship with him, a veil still literally remained between God and his people at that time. But in Christ that veil was torn. In Christ, we no longer only look ahead to future deliverances. We have been delivered. And as we learn more and more to fix our eyes on Christ, as we come to know God's greatest promise fulfilled, we will come to know and love David's God more fully And through this, we will begin to see ourselves and our circumstances more accurately. And let's look at this very last line of the psalm. That I may walk before God in the light of life. Jesus died to give us full, unencumbered access to David's God. How much more confidence can we have that he is for us? How much more do we have to celebrate and offer thanks for? My friends, the only sane response to such a truth is humble worship. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good to us. You are steadfast and faithful, and your love never fails. Lord, you are so profoundly in control over all things that not even a hair can fall from our heads without you allowing it to happen. Sometimes that's hard for us to understand, Lord, but you are with us always. You never leave or forsake us. Lord, thank you for the ways that you have made yourself known to us in your Bible. But most of all, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you have delivered us from sin and death and that we have an eternal inheritance through him, that nothing can ever change that. Father, we love you. Amen.